You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. In 1971, scientists at the National Acceleration Laboratory had a problem. The NAL's new Mason Laboratory was nearing completion, but the pipework through which subatomic particles would fly was dirty. It needed to be absolutely spotless to work properly. Someone had to figure out how to remove the innumerable tiny steel particles, dust, and other debris from the pipe's interior before they could be used. The first idea create a mechanical cleaner to wipe out the 12-inch or 30-centimeter wide, 300-foot or 91-meter long tube. A good idea, but an expensive and fiddly one. Idea number two, hire someone uniquely suited to the job, a ferret. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Animals have been our companions for tens of thousands of years and have been doing jobs for us pretty much the whole time. Some jobs are obvious, like sniffer dogs and mouser cats, so they won't be on today's list. Instead, we'll focus on surprising jobs that animals do. For those who don't already know and love those caffeinated meat slinkies, ferrets love to duck into holes and burrows so they can run down to the end to see what's there. British physicist Robert Sheldon recalled how, back home, ferrets would be sent down rabbit holes to ferret out the rabbits. The team agreed to give the less expensive, more cuddly option a try, so the NAL purchased Felicia, a small 15-inch or 38-centimeter ferret, for about $35. Employees taught Felicia to scurry down the piping while fitted with a special collar and string. As Felicia ran through the pipe, she pulled the string with her. When she emerged at the other end, workers fastened a tight-fitting swab soaked in cleaning fluid to the end of the string and then pulled it back through the pipe to clean it. Sadly, Felicia was eventually made redundant with a mechanical ferret. When James Jumper Wild worked for the Cape Town Port Authority Railway Service, he developed a habit of leaping from one railway car to the other, even when the trains were moving, as you do. One day in 1877, he misjudged his jump and fell under a moving train. Jumper survived, though the train had severed both of his legs at the knee. Devastated but not defeated, he made himself two new legs out of wooden pegs and took up a job at the Utenhag station. He even constructed a wooden trolley to help him get around, but despite these additions, was still having trouble. That's when Jack appeared. Jumper met Jack at the local market where he was leading an ox wagon. Jumper was impressed with Jack's intelligence and decided to hire him as his new assistant. Eventually, Jack learned how to push Jumper to work in his wagon, switch the train signals, and even hand the conductors their keys. He quickly became an invaluable asset to Jumper's work. Jack's greatest claim to fame? He was a baboon. 
Jumper taught Jack how to use the train signals by holding up one or two fingers and pulling the corresponding levers. Jack also picked up things through watching Jumper, such as delivering the conductor's keys. As a train pulled into the station, it would set off four blasts of its whistle, signaling the conductor's need for a key. As soon as he heard the whistles, Jumper would grab the keys and hobble over to the conductor. Jack picked up on this, and after just a few days, started doing it on his own. Eventually, Jack could operate the railway signals on his own while under supervision from Jumper. He even became something of a local celebrity, and people would come from far around Cape Town to watch the baboon operate the switches. However, the idea of a baboon running the trains was understandably worrisome to some people, and one concerned citizen alerted the train authorities. Apparently, while many people at the management office knew that Jumper had hired an assistant, the fact that he had hired a monkey had slipped through the cracks. A railroad manager was immediately dispatched to the station to fire the duo, but when he arrived, Jumper pleaded for their jobs, offering for the manager to test Jack's skills. Thinking there was no way a baboon could be as competent as a human, the manager agreed. He instructed an engineer to sound a train's whistle, and watched, shocked, as Jack made the correct signal change. Apparently, Jack never looked away from the train, ensuring that his work was correct. The railroad manager was suitably impressed. He let Jumper keep his job, and even made Jack the Baboon an official employee, paying him 20 cents a day and half a bottle of beer each week for his work for the next nine years. In those nine years, Jack made exactly zero mistakes on the job. Of all the dogs earning their own living, Bodhi, the Shiba Inu, rakes in $15,000 a month with a very non-canine job. This Japanese hunting dog is a model that goes by the moniker Menswear Dog. Owners and fashion designers Yenna Kim and David Fung first clad Bodhi in a stylish suit in 2013 on a whim. Unlike most canines who would scratch or shake off such finement, Bodhi seemed to enjoy it and even began posing. The couple posted a photo of the engaging pooch on Facebook, instantly launching Bodhi's career. Menswear Dog has a Facebook page with over 200,000 likes, he's got over a quarter million Instagram followers, and 10,000 followers on Twitter. He's often out doing campaign shoots for brands like Coach, American Apparel, Hudson Shoes, and of course, Purina. Then there are his individual photo shoots for publications like GQ, Esquire, and Fast Company, as well as personal appearances at events like New York Fashion Week. He even has a book titled Menswear Dog Presents the New Classics, Fresh Looks for the Modern Man. A lot of people dream of being a NASCAR driver. Jocko Flacco, a rhesus monkey, got to be the next best thing, a NASCAR co-driver. In 1953, stock car racer Tim Flock decided to race with a monkey as a gimmick. Flock nicknamed his pint-sized companion Jocko Flacco and outfitted him with his own uniform, number 91, and a custom-designed seat. Jocko sped around the track with Flock during eight exciting races. Unfortunately, Jocko wasn't destined to make this a permanent career. Flock explained on his website what happened. Back then, the cars had a trap door that we could pull open with a chain to check out the tire wear. Well, during the Raleigh 300, Jocko got loose from his seat and stuck his head through the trap door, and he went berserk. 
Listen, it was hard enough to drive those heavy old cars back then under normal circumstances, but with a crazed monkey clawing at you at the same time, it became nearly impossible. I had to come into the pits to put him out and ended up third. That pit cost me second place and $600 difference in my paycheck. Jocko was retired immediately. I had to get that monkey off my back. Important unwritten rule of giving an animal a job? Check and make sure that they want the job. While most of our dogs do no work to speak of, especially mine, most of them were bred for some specific purpose, be it protecting livestock, controlling vermin, herding, hunting, protecting, even guarding old-timey fire engines so no one stole them, which is why we have Dalmatians. But as many jobs, like Rag and Bone Man and Knocker Up, have become obsolete, some dog breeds have followed their original tasks into the annals of history. Such was the fate of the turnspit dog. The Canis verticus, or turnspit, was an essential part of every large kitchen in Britain in the 16th century. The small canine was bred to run in a wheel that turned a roasting spit in the kitchen fireplace. They were referred to as the kitchen dog, the cooking dog, or the vernepature cur, says Cara Farrell, library and collections manager at the Kennel Club in London. The very first mention of them is in 1576, in the first book on dogs ever written. Household ovens are a comparatively recent appliance. Everything was cooked on the hearth or over the fire, so meat on a spit was de rigueur. If you want your meat cooked evenly, your rotisserie needs to keep moving constantly. The turned spit was bred especially to run on a wheel attached to the spit, which in turn turned the meat so it would cook right. That's how the turned spit got its name. For Nepature Cur is Latin for the dog that turns the wheel. The wheels were far enough from the fire itself that the dogs didn't overheat, though it was not unheard of for people to flick a hot coal at the dog's feet to keep it moving. Before the dogs, the fireplace spit was turned by the lowest person in the kitchen staff, usually a small boy who stood behind a bale of wet hay to be protected from the heat, turning the iron spit for hours and hours. In the 16th century, the boy gave way to dogs. Descriptions of the dog paint a rather muddy picture. Small, low-bodied, short front legs, a docked tail, heavy head, and drooping ears. Some had gray and white fur, while others were black or reddish-brown. The dogs were strong and sturdy, capable of working for hours, and over time evolved into a distinct breed. Life wasn't all work for the turnspit dogs, though. They were often given Sundays off and allowed to go to church with the family. Do you have an animal that actually knows how to do something productive? Because I sure don't. Take a picture of them doing it and tag us on social media. On Facebook and Instagram, it's Your Brain on Facts, and Twitter, it's at Brain on Facts Pod. Social media is also still the best way to support this podcast and any other podcast you enjoy. Sharing the show is absolutely invaluable. Which is not to say that I would turn you away from patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, of course. For the discerning listener who likes to get extra content and, of course, bumper stickers. If, like me, you're tired and depressed by the current news cycle, and you're in the market for a new kind of candidate, why not look outside your political party and outside your species while you're at it? 
humans aren't the only ones who have become elected officials. In Sonal, California, a town of 828 residents just north of San Jose, two residents signed up in 1981 to run for the position of honorary mayor, which would allow them to represent Sonal's interests in the Alameda County meetings. As the elections drew near, the race grew bitter. Partly in jest, resident Brad Lieber said that his black Labrador, Bosco, could win the election if Bosco's name was on the ballot. People took Lieber's words to heart, and since most of them knew and liked Bosco, they wrote his name in. Running as a Republican, Bosco won the election in a landslide, resulting in international news coverage. The China People's Daily cited the election as proof of the failure of American democracy. They clearly hadn't met Bosco. For the next 13 years, Mayor Bosco wandered the town during the day, stopping in the tavern for some food. When ill health caused him to be put down in 1994, the locals did not forget their unique elected official. They erected a bronze statue of the former mayor in front of the post office in 2008, where it still stands today, and a pub named in his honor opened the following year. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Bosco has a lot of company. Boston Curtis, a brown mule, was offered as a candidate for a Republican precinct seat in Milton, Washington in 1938, winning 51 to 0. In 1997, a cat named Stubbs was elected mayor of Talkeetna, Alaska. Although his title as mayor was honorary, he was featured as a write-in candidate for the 2014 Senate race for Alaska. Sadly, Stubbs did not win. In August 2014, seven-year-old Duke the Dog, not the one from the baked bean commercial, won an election and became the new mayor of Cormorant, Minnesota for five years. A cat named Sweet Tart is presently serving her first term as mayor of a small town in Michigan. Kakareko, a rhinoceros at the Sao Paulo Zoo, was a candidate 
for the 1958 city council elections with the intention of protesting against political corruption. Electoral officials didn't appreciate Kakareko's candidacy, but she eventually won 100,000 votes, more than any other party in that same election. Today, the term voto kakareko is commonly used to describe protest votes in Brazil. Kakareko's candidacy inspired the Rhinoceros Party of Canada, nominally led by the rhinoceros Cornelius I. Tiao, a bad-tempered chimpanzee, was put forth by the fictional Brazilian Banana Party for mayor of Rio de Janeiro in 1988. The campaign slogan, Vote Monkey, Get Monkey, because people were tired of voting for a platform and then seeing the elected official doing something different. There's no official counting of how many votes Tiao got, because all of the votes were voided, but it's estimated that he came in third with 400,000 votes. New Zealand's McGillicuddy's Serious Party entered a GOAT in a local election, but their attempt to have a hedgehog stand for Parliament was unsuccessful. Katmandu, a political cat, served as joint leader of Britain's official monster-raving loony party from 1999 to 2002, along with his owner, Howling Laud Hope. Hank the Cat, a Maine Coon from Northern Virginia, ran against Tim Kaine and George Allen for Virginia's Senate seat in 2012. He earned third place with nearly 7,000 votes, which is honestly far from the worst news story to come out of my home state recently. Dogs have been a part of warfare for presumably as long as we've had both dogs and warfare. That's why we have the expression, the dogs of war. They've carried supplies, located mines, rescued people, patrol guards, the usual. In the early 1930s, though, the Soviet Union decided it would be a keen idea to turn man's best friend into an anti-tank weapon. First, the dogs were trained to carry a bomb to a tank and run off. Afterwards, their handlers could detonate the bomb with a remote, or the bomb could be set with a timer. There are several reasons that these methods wouldn't work. To drop the bomb, the dogs had to pull on a belt with their teeth to release it, which proved to be too complicated, and often the dogs would simply return to their handler without releasing the bomb. Secondly, remotes were too expensive at the time to be practical, so timers would have been used more often than not, and if the dog returned to his handler with the bomb still attached before the timer went off, well, it wouldn't end well. Even if the bomb was released under the tank, If the tank was moving and the timer wasn't set just right, the bomb would explode without doing any damage. The Soviets scrapped their initial plan, but unfortunately came up with a new one, or rather a key change to the original plan. The dogs wouldn't drop the bombs before they detonated. As if involuntary kamikaze dogs weren't bad enough, the training involved starving the dogs and placing food under the tanks to train them to run toward and under tanks. Things didn't go as well in the field as they did in the training schools. In battle, many of the dogs refused to dive under the tanks while they were being shot at, which hadn't happened in training. Food can only motivate an animal so much. I could put a pack of Hebrew National hot dogs next to my vacuum cleaner and my big dog still won't go near it, and a vacuum cleaner is somewhat less noisy than a tank. The dogs that didn't flee were sometimes shot and recovered by the Germans, in hopes of examining the bomb to potentially copy it themselves. The trouble was that the Soviet bombs were 
less advanced than what the Germans were already using. A much larger problem, though, was that the dogs were trained with Soviet tanks, not German ones. Soviet and German tanks used different types of fuel, so some dogs followed that distinct scent to the tanks of their side instead of the enemy. That said, the anti-tank dog was known to have taken out some tanks, including at the Battle of Kursk, in which 12 tanks were destroyed by 16 deployed dogs. This was possibly the most successful anti-tank dog venture in history, thankfully. The Soviets later reported 300 tanks total had been destroyed by dogs, but few outside the Soviet Union actually believe that number. Unsurprisingly, anti-tank dogs were used less and less from 1942 onward, though they were still being trained as late as 1996. This is far from the only military plan involving animals duped into committing suicide on our behalf. After hearing about the devastating attack on Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, Pennsylvania dentist and inventor Little S. Adams hatched a scheme to use bats as bombs to attack Japanese cities. The plan was to strap small incendiary bombs, like really small ones with timers, to bats and release them over cities. The bats would roost in eaves and attics, causing buildings to catch fire when the bombs went off. So many buildings would ignite at once, Adams reasoned, that the Japanese wouldn't be able to suppress the fires before they spread. Adams had an in with Eleanor Roosevelt, so government officials actually considered his plan. By 1943, the U.S. Army was conducting serious tests. Thousands of bats were captured with nets, placed into ice cube trays, which helps remind you of how tiny an animal we're talking, and cooled to put them into hibernation to be shipped overseas. As the military did more research, they actually started to like the plan. They found that bats could carry almost double their own weight, and their natural behavior made them perfect for sneaking into rooftops and structures undetected. They were so good at secretly penetrating buildings, in fact, that when a few escaped during testing, they managed to take out a fuel tanker, an air hangar, and a general's car. The Marine Corps took over the program as High Command wanted one million bats ready to launch on Japan as soon as possible. The bats were to be loaded into bomb-shaped cages filled with stackable trays, each payload holding about 1,000 bats. The bombs would be dropped by B-24 bombers from 5,000 feet, parachutes would deploy at 1,000 feet, and the bats would spread out over a large area to infest the buildings. Project X-Ray, as it was renamed by the Marine Corps, had already been through 30 tests at a cost of $2 million when it was cancelled in favor of the Manhattan Project and its new and devastating weapon. If you need a daytime animal-based air attack, there's always B.F. Skinner's pigeon-guided missile. Called, disappointingly, Project Pigeon, Skinner's plan was to put a camera on the front of a missile connected to a tiny screen in the nose cone where would be stationed a pigeon whose job was to peck at the screen to guide the missile to the target. As the pigeon pecked, cables harnessed to its head would mechanically steer the missile until it reached its mark. Alas, there is no escape hatch. Skinner had already used pigeons in his psychological research, training them to press levers to get food. 
An obsessive inventor, he'd been pondering weapons targeting systems one day when he saw a flock of birds maneuvering in formation. Suddenly I saw them as devices with excellent vision and extraordinary maneuverability, he said. Could they not guide a missile? Was the answer to the problem waiting for me in my own backyard? No. Despite a successful demonstration of trained pigeons, officials remained skeptical and eventually decided not to pursue Project Pigeon. Not all oddball military animals get a one-way ticket, though. The U.S. Navy, the same organization that gave my husband his amazing skills in electronics, has a crack squad of dolphins. Or that would be a crack pod, I guess. The Navy Marine Mammal Program at the Space and Naval Warfare Systems Command in San Diego, California, trains 85 dolphins and 50 sea lions to carry out a range of military tasks, from locating underwater mines to flagging the presence of enemy swimmers for harbor defense. The program first started in 1960, when the Navy studied Naughty, a female Pacific white-sided dolphin. The Navy hoped to study her biomechanics and then use their findings to develop faster torpedoes. Military researchers realized the dolphins themselves could become a battlefield asset. Dolphins have seen occasional use during war. In 1970 and 71, five cetaceans guarded an army ammunition pier at Vietnam's Con Ran Bay, providing surveillance to thwart enemy swimmers. Dolphins were also deployed from Bahrain during the Tanker War, a late phase of the Iran-Iraq War in which the warring neighbors targeted one another's oil vessels after the U.S. got involved in 1987. The animals even helped provide security for the Republican National Convention in 1996, which took place at the Waterside San Diego Convention Center less than a month after a bombing at the Summer Olympics in Atlanta. Dolphins returned to the Persian Gulf in 2003 to clear mines ahead of coalition vehicles during the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq. The sea mammals make attractive military assets because of their intelligence and trainability, as well as their speed in the water, and that their echolocation outperforms electronic competitors. It's especially useful for identifying underwater mines. When the dolphin finds one, they swim back to their trainers, who might give them a transponder to drop near the mine in order to mark its location. But dolphins could be trained to kill, according to one persistent rumor surrounding the Navy's marine mammal program. In his memoir on life as a Navy SEAL, Brandon Webb writes about a training exercise in San Diego to evade enemy military dolphins. Trainers used the mammals to track down enemy divers, outfitting them with a device strapped onto the head that contained a simulated compressed gas needle. Once the dolphins had tracked you down, they butt you. The needle shoots out and pokes you, creating an embolism. An air or gas bubble injected into a vein or artery can quickly travel into the organs, which can be lethal. Webb sums it up as, Within moments, you're dead. The official program's FAQ page emphatically denies ever training dolphins, quote, to harm or injure humans in any fashion, or to carry weapons to destroy ships. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. One more critter career before we go. In New Delhi, India in 2001, rhesus monkeys, who are often wild in the street, began stealing things from government buildings and destroying equipment. 
so the Indian government opted to simply employ bigger monkeys to guard their facilities. They theorized that the large langur monkeys would frighten away the smaller rhesus, forcing them to move into other areas away from the civil service buildings. Paid in bananas, the langur employees prove their worth by running off the rhesus every time. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. you find it hard to sleep at night then the calm cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long calm cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires all of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast calm cove is brought to you by the team behind sleep cove the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis meditation and stories so if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight search for calm cove on apple podcasts or spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night